0: This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 175. Hey, you know what's next. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment
1: Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now,
0: your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. We're all about apartment building, investing, to achieve financial freedom with real estate. You hear this a lot. It's really hard to find deals right now. And I'm like, is it really? Because I know dozens of people who are doing deals right now. In fact, at Duumerica Live a few weeks ago, we actually had a panel about what's working now to get deals under contract and it's certainly happening. And so, we're going to drill down on this a little bit in this episode here because here we have uh, Logan Freeman. He's done over 120 transactions and he's kind of found a niche representing buyers instead of sellers. What's interesting about that, in order to represent buyers, he actually has to find deals as well. And so what is he doing to build credibility with brokers, and he's a young guy right now, the one thing he does have and this is the thing that people have in common who are doing deals is he's got hustle. It's not just crazy random hustle, but it's very target hustle. So he talks about what he's doing to build relationship with brokers, what how, you know, how is he doing it? What kind of tactics is he using? How is he behaving? And how is it that he's getting off market deals for himself? and for his buyers that he represents. So super cool little mastermind with Logan because he's kind of ninja on this thing. So it's really, really cool. Before we get into the show, I just want to make uh, make sure you guys know that our investment company is Nighthawk equity and we're constantly looking for accredited investors, even non accredited investors. So if you're interested in passively investing in multifamily real estate, which, in my opinion, and many others is the best investment on the planet much better than stocks because of the consistency, the cash flow and the tax benefits are, are just really extraordinary. So if you're interested in that, check us out at nighthawkequity.com. That's nighthawkequity.com and just click on the join button. You can join our investor club and uh, fill out a really quick form and have a phone call with us. And we'll get to know each other a little bit. And uh, once we've done that, we can then show you some of our upcoming opportunities. So really, really excited about the stuff we're doing there. Because the mission with Nighthawk is the same as it is with the educational stuff. It's really financial freedom. The past investor wants the same thing that the active investor wants, which is just financial freedom, they want to control their time. So if that describes you, or if you want to use pass investing to get to act investor, and that's also very common, check us out at nighthawkequity.com and click the join button. All right, with that, hey, let's get into weeds here with Logan Freeman about how to find off market properties. Here we go. Logan, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, I'm glad to be here, Michael.
0: This is cool. We're going to have a little fun today because uh, wow. you're, 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 a full-time, you're a full-time real estate investor. You have a little specialty niche, and we're going to get into that. Sure. But one thing I did know about you, Logan, is that you were drafted for the NFL. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, well, I, I had a pretty decent career in college and um, small school here in Missouri and Warrensburg, Division II football team. It was funny how this happened. Like, the scouts, I'd start to see them walking around the, uh, the campus, and, and I went up to my coaches and I said, hey, uh, guys, who, who are they here to see? and uh they go you and i was like what like that was legitimately like how i found out and i sat down with i started sitting down with these scouts and talking about and watching film with them so yeah it was pretty cool to have that happen so that's pretty cool all right so so what happened well, I was picked up after my senior year and I actually went to the Oakland Raiders, which being a Kansas City guy, I mean a Chiefs fan, that's pretty tough. But I, I literally told my agent, I was like, any other team. No, it's like whenever whenever a team calls you, you you go. So you don't really have a pick on that. So uh, I was out there when Dennis Allen was the head coach and Tony Sperano was the off- offensive line coach and you know I would I tell people this and I talked about this on a few other podcasts, but physically i was there at the at the nfl combine i ran a five flat 40 i weighed 335 pounds which i don't weigh that anymore but i bench pressed 32 times on the on the, the 225 i mean physically i was there but mentally i was not mature enough to handle the pressure, the plays, the coaching, taking that jump from Division II all the way to the NFL, uh, I could just see that those Division One football players I was playing against were just groomed so much differently. And so uh, it was a very humbling experience. I made it a lot longer than I thought, and I actually beat out quite a few other drafted uh, players, which I was pretty excited about. But ultimately, I didn't make the team, and I was, I was cut. But it was a great, great experience for me.
0: So you enjoyed it, um, but you were probably maybe envisioning, I don't know, some kind of football career and it didn't pan out. How did you react to it? Were you fine
1: with it? Were you kind of down on yourself? Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I really was just trying to make the practice squad so I could put enough money in my pocket to go do real estate. I swear that that was my plan. And uh, it, it happened a little bit differently. But whenever that happened, I would say that I had a kind of an identity crisis, right? I mean, growing up, I was an athlete. In high school, I was the athlete. In college, I was the athlete, and whenever that's taken away from you, I had a choice to make, and um, some other things happened in my life during that period of time, but I ultimately decided to not play football anymore, even though I had another chance to to continue on my, my route because my heart wasn't in it, and I wasn't motivated and driven by it, so I ended up going back to school and finishing up my master's degree and actually using my brain instead of my body to make money, and that transition period was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, I lost 100 pounds during that period of time in six months, by the way, Michael. So I went from 335 to 235 in less than six months. I finished my master's degree. Uh, I was working a full-time job and going to school full-time, making 265 cold calls a day. So uh, it wasn't too much fun what I was doing, but it was working. I was paying the bills because after football, you know, that scholarship is is taken up. So you got to pay for for schooling somehow. And the biggest thing I think would probably happen was my father passed away. Uh, he was an addict on drugs and alcohol, and he passed away during that same period of time. So it was like this whole influx of, of different things kind of coming at me. And I, I basically had what I call a decision point. And in my life, I could either take the, the woe is me route or take control of my life, or at least the choices that I got to make. And uh, I decided to dive into my faith and then also to personal, and professional development. And I picked up that wonderful purple book that I think a lot of us probably have picked up, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I was hooked. I really was. So that's a little bit about that transition period.
0: Yeah. So that purple book ruined my life. It seems like it worked out well for you. Uh, so <laughs> so you were working full time. What were you doing to make 265 phone calls a day? I'm not good at math, but it seems like an awful lot of phone calls in, in one day.
1: Oh, Michael, this was, uh, I never had a business job. So I, I grew up throwing hay on the back of a truck. I grew up sweeping floors and working in catering kitchens and, uh, and doing pouring concrete and building walls and houses. And so I needed a business job, right? And so I found some company that would hire some green guy like me that had a bachelor's degree, but I, I was finishing my master's at the time. And we were selling educational data to K-12 through 12 vendors. So basically, The company would go onto websites, scrape the school directory information, put it into an Excel file, and I was selling those Excel files.
0: Nice. So
1: yeah, it's it's painful.
0: What 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 was a valuable thing that you learned doing this most painful job?
1: I would say that your self-worth cannot be tied to the outcomes that you get in life. It just needs to be tied to the amount of effort that you put into it.
0: Why do you say that? Because people hung up on you a lot?
1: Oh, tons. (laughs) I mean, if if I talked to somebody, I was excited, right? Like you can tell I got some energy to me, but most of the time it was just voicemail, voicemail, voicemail. And somebody actually pick up. I was like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? You know? And, and uh, yeah, I think that that's probably why and, and it taught me about confidence and being able to build rapport on the phone very, very quickly.
0: Yeah, that's what you have to do. That's that's a great lesson, as much as you probably hated it. Now, you said something kind of insane to me earlier on. You said while you were at the Raiders, you were actually secretly dreaming about real estate, which is really, really like bizarre to me. Yeah. What's behind that? Why were you even thinking about real estate at the time?
1: So... Growing up, I I was able to be mentored by some really, really incredible guys. And most of the guys were um, my friends' fathers. And so I would watch what they did. And one, they owned businesses. And two, they owned a bunch of real estate. They're like, hey, I got to go and check on these rentals. I was like, what? Like, you want to cut some, make some money? Yeah. I was like, yeah. I was like, let's go cut some grass. Okay. So I was cutting grass at rentals. You know, I was doing, I was moving when people would get evicted and leave stuff. I was moving that stuff out. I was just working alongside these guys, and I was seeing that uh, the way that they were living and they were making. One of them said kind of something to me. He said, "Well, you got to figure out." And I didn't get it at the time. He goes, "You got to figure out how to make money while you sleep." And that was it. He didn't say anything more, but that always stuck with me. And so I started to actually think about that when I dove back into my personal and professional development world. And, and uh, real estate was, it was just like, ding, ding, ding. That was so That's always was in the back of my head that if I wanted to create wealth, uh, I needed to to get into real estate.
0: You're giving me hope that uh, you uh, as, a, as a young kid, remember something an adult said. So when I talk to my kids and they ignore me, maybe <laughs> I actually remember something. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. So, so you're, <laughs> you're, you're getting yeah. your master's, you're doing this job on the side. At, at one point, did you get started with real estate and what did you do to get
1: started? Yeah. So after right after college, I was able to secure a job with Jimmy John's as a franchise consultant with those guys. And I had about 25 stores here in the KC metro area that I was overseeing. And again, I saw the power of what those franchise, I mean, I'm not, this is a delicate subject for you, Michael, because there were some, there were some things. There are some some
0: successful franchisees out there. All right. So I get that. I get that. So
1: I was watching what these guys were doing and they had like eight, 10 of these stores, but not only did they have the stores, they owned the real estate behind those stores.
0: That's huge.
1: It was huge. And I was like, and they also said, well, we've got this other rental business that we're talking about. So it was another light bulb to me. So I said, well, uh, I'm renting right now. Why don't I, why don't I go buy some property? And so I started with live in flips while I was working full time. So I would move in. I'd bring a buddy uh, with me, say, look, man, I need you to pay me 700 bucks worth a month of, of rent. I mean my mortgage was seven fifty. So all I paid was utilities. And then I would get a contractor to come in and basically tell me exactly what I needed to do. I would go to Hy- or I'd go to the Home Depot, I'd load everything up, I'd have somebody pick it up for me, and I'd take it back home, and then I would hire out the crews and start working on, on renovating these houses. And um, I would live in them so I'd do the FHA thing, you know, and I'd put some money in my pocket. Well that first one that I did I timed the market pretty good too here in Kansas City, but I, I, I would like to sell it now instead of five years ago. But uh, I put more money in my pocket that with that flip than I was making a year at Jimmy John's. And I said, man, there's something to this. And so I just, I started to really get focused on that. And then full time two years ago, you know, fast forward three years, I was still working as a director of sales in different companies. And uh, my last one, this is another decision point in my life. My last job, I was I sold a project the week before. I came in on a Monday morning at 6 a.m. I was like, well, I'm an early bird. I'm usually here by 7 anyways, and maybe they just want to have a meeting with me. Well, that meeting was, was with me and the head of HR, and they, they were letting me go. Uh, we brought on a private equity firm to kind of help out on some of the technology stuff. I was a young, new, inexperienced, expensive salesperson, and so me and, and quite a few of the other salespeople were, were let go. And that day forward, uh, I came home. I called my wife. I said, yep, I got fired and she's like, well, that's okay. That next morning, she had my LLC documents on my desk at home, and she said, you're starting your business. And I was like, that's awesome. That's in a
0: supportive <laughs> said, wife. Holy moly. Yeah,
1: I was like, well, what business am I starting? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she's like, well, what are you good at? And so um, throughout this time, I had, a, I had a coach. He was a talent smarts coach, so strength finders, emotional intelligence, builder, all that stuff. So he was helping me kind of through this process. And I started a consulting company. And again, I didn't know what I was selling. So I picked up a list of companies. It was like 5,000 companies. I called all 5,000 of those companies. I landed three of them, none of them in Kansas City. I landed three of them as consulting clients. And they're like, well, Logan, what are you going to do? And I was like, what do you need me to do? And I started doing exactly what they told me to do. I quickly learned that that wasn't working for the man anymore. I was just working for my clients. I didn't love that work. In the same period of time, Michael, I was also the director of acquisitions for about a $40 million fund here in Kansas City. So I knew I was going to get into real estate. I just wasn't sold on it. That, That was going to be my only source of income. And so my buddy had a pretty successful investment firm here in Kansas City, small boutique firm. And we started uh, we started working together and my first month I did over a million dollars and in Kansas City that's over 10 properties on the single family side so that's where I went full-time uh, it was about two years ago and and uh, really I think in September of last year's when I started I actually found your content and started diving straight into everything that I could find got the course went through it and um, you know, I've successfully syndicated some projects now and we're full force ahead right now.
0: That's great. So you got started with single family house, you kind of, and you did it on your own with someone else. And at at one point, and why did you transition to multifamily or even commercial property?
1: Sure. So to buy 120 properties in a year, you have to look at 650. And when you're dealing with out-of-state investors, you go see all of those properties. And so one, it was just not the best use of my time to go drive around the city looking at 15 properties a day, and then estimating the rehabs, underwriting every single one of them, getting back and then making offers. on. It was just a whole process that I probably could have systemized, but I, I wanted to learn. And at the end of the day, I also think that the market, so our spreads started to, to do this. I mean, so many out-of-state investors were trying to buy single-family homes in Kansas City. I have a different mentor who said, look, you're, you need to raise your barrier of entry. You're doing something that everybody can do right now. And he asked me, I don't know what he goes, I don't know real estate, but what can't other people do? And I said... Buy, you know, 100 units, buy commercial buildings, buy this, buy that. And I knew that I wanted to transition into that anyways. And so it was a little bit of the market, a little bit of me trying to work smarter and not harder and wanting to get into the syndication side so I could start to actually own property myself too.
0: So you've kind of uh, specialized in this a little bit. I think through a, you came about through the house flip side where you're basically representing buyers who want to buy stuff. Yep. And I, the way I'm envisioning it, it's almost like a little bit like a turnkey thing or like an almost like an agent uh, broker thing sure. where you have people say, hey, I want to buy stuff, let's in, say in Kansas City, and you go out and find it for them, they buy it, maybe you get a commission. What does that look like on the multifamily side?
1: Sure. So I, I, it's a few other, I mean, I think it's a few ways. It's so funny. When I sat down with the broker here, the managing broker, and I told her what I wanted to do, uh, she's like, good luck. You know, I was like, just wait. You just wait. And uh, now that we've been doing four to six million a month in brokerage on the buy side, she's like, "Keep doing it. Keep you know, keep doing it." But I learned how. Again, I learned how to be on the phone all day. So this little this little earpiece is in my ear, twenty four seven. I have some weird stories about that. It's actually caused me some medical issues where I have impactions in my ear because I have an earpiece in so much. And it's what hearing aid people get whenever they have hearing aids in. So Michael, I'm on the phone 12 hours out of the day usually. So that's a little bit TMI, but it's kind of funny because my wife's like, "You you are to the extreme. You know that? And I was like, yep, I do. Well, I had just, I never worked with sellers. And in the commercial world, you want sellers, right? Well, again, I looked at the market and said, People are asking me for properties, they're asking me for cash flow and yield, and they need property management, construction, and they need all of this stuff because they're out of state. Well, I've been trying to just focus on what the, the market's telling me and going and, and fixing that solution to, to that problem. And so I said, well, there's 15 other brokers in this, in this office, they're all calling the sellers. Why don't I bring sophisticated, high net worth individuals into the buy side and I created a process that I work through. I get them on, you know, I work through underwriting with similar to what we did. I work through all this different things on the financing side. And when we start to actually make offers on properties, we move fast. And um, the due diligence is done a lot before before we go under, under contract, which has opened up. You know, my my success rate's usually about nine out of 10 times I'll close our property if we go under contract. And um, that's opened up a whole new avenue of off-market properties for me in Kansas City because I'm known as the guy that, hey, if you need to sell something or you need this or this, you need to call Logan because he's not going to BS you. He's going to perform and he's got really great buyers. And so it was really just me trying to listen to the market and say, well, I'm not going to go do exactly what every other broker is doing in the city. What if I bring value to those brokers and there's only about three to five of them that are really slinging the multifamily here. And guess what? I have lunch with them every week to say, what's new, what's coming in the pipeline. Here's the buyers I've got. I've got 10, 1031 exchange, you know, type opportunities that we need to place. What do you got? And I'm able to find off-market properties that way. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful source of deal flow for me and my investors. That's
0: cool. All right. So let's talk about the sell side and then the buy side, because I I find what you're doing really fascinating. One thing that I love what you're doing is you're hustling. All right. There's so many people that are like, oh, I can't find deals anymore. Are you finding deals right now?
1: I'm finding deals every That's day
0: That's a shocker. And the sh- and the reason is because you're freaking hustling, right? And yep. I think this is a, a main message that we also saw at D America Live. The people who are doing deals are they're they're hustling. They're not submitting one offering wondering why it wasn't uh, accepted. Yep. So let's talk about the sales side. So you're still working through brokers yep. directly. And and the reason for that is why?
1: Well, so I'm i I'm a broker myself right? too. So uh, the reason is because they are putting all of the action in and in commercial real estate, we're in a relationship business. That's all this is. And so these brokers with these big firms, they've got their what I'll call talents into all of the property owners in Kansas City. They, they just do. I mean, that's that's the way, and that's what their job is to be. So I looked at it. I said, I could either go directly to the, the property owners who already have their guard up. They've already got Bercadia, CBRE, and, and Block all in their boardroom asking them to list their properties. What if I took the different approach and said, hey, Block, hey, CBRE, hey, Bercadia, what do you need right now? Give me a shot at something that's off market. Let me perform. And then just, and then, and then open it up to me. So I'm, I'm doing it that way because there's a few brokers in the city that have most of the listings. It's the 80, 20 rule. I mean, one guy did 60 million in real estate last year and we're meeting at three o'clock today because he's got the property owners and he's got the deals that won't ever come to, to market. So, and then this, that's one reason. The second reason is I said, if you if your seller can't pay, that's fine. Have them pay your fee. I will talk to my buyer, and we will come up with an amicable amount that they feel comfortable adding on to the purchase. And price. how's that? So how's I, that
0: been working out? I love that. How, are they splitting it with oh you, yeah, or they're saying, they, "Hey, bring me another one, two, three
1: percent"? It's working out fantastic mm-hmm. because I've added enough value with these groups—these private equity groups, or family offices, or ten thirty-one clients that are looking to place money here—that they're happy to pay me because not just this deal, they need deal flow. And to keep me happy, they're going to pay me to do that. And it's not been an issue what, whatsoever.
0: So interesting. So you're establishing a relationship with these brokers, because they've they already know every single owner in there. And that's their business to send them cards, phone calls, lunches. So what you're doing is what are you doing with those listing brokers? What does your interaction with them look like frequency and type?
1: Yeah, so I mean, my my, it's really to build a trust first. So um, I mean, I don't have any gray in my hair. Most of the successful guys here do. So it's really starting small. So I'll ask them, I'll ask them if they've got a problem property, if they need, if they've got something that's just been really causing them a ton of a ton of grief over the last three months, and I'll try to solve that problem. And not, it might not be something that I particularly do on a transaction side, but maybe there's a construction company that I know, or maybe there's a investor that would like to buy out one of the other investors in a tick. Maybe I can make that connection for them. So it's building trust and relationship with those with those brokers first, and trying to figure out how to solve that problem. And then I never, ever talk about what's in it for me. And that always comes up. And people are finally like, man, you just, you know, you just introduced us to a, a really big client of yours that if they place money with us, you're not going to see anything. So said, maybe not this time, but I absolutely will the next time, won't I? And, I? and I never have been told no on that. So it's being able to have what I call the abundance mindset and being able to figure out, okay, how do I add value to them, play the long term? Because I know that they're going to continue to do what they're doing. And I want to be able to be that next call when they have a 96 unit or 110 units off market that they need a buyer for. And if I can also get my buyers to pay me, it's no love lost to them because some of the big agencies don't want a co-broker, which is fine. Fine. If that's the way you want to do business, that's the way you want to do business. Still give me a shot. I'll put my fee in the buyer's place and they're okay with that. And so that brings up a couple other points that I'm sure you want to ask about.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, you're blurring the line between the typical syndicator deal finder and also the broker. Uh, There's very few that I know of who are buyer representatives. Uh, I know the couple Mm -hmm. I've known really, I don't know what, what use they provide. But you're kind of behaving like a syndicator who's looking for deals, uh, though in sure. some cases you may be syndicating, though it sounds like in most cases you're actually literally placing, you're trying to place a buyer with a property. But the problematic is exactly the same. So one of my questions is how did they were they able to take you seriously? So I know you were, you were looking for problems, but when you yeah. first got started with this stuff. You know, who are you, right? You don't actually maybe even have a buyer at the time. You have no track record. And so a lot of new syndicators are in the same position. What did you do to get these guys to trust you?
1: Yeah, well, so if the deal is good enough, Michael, I am buying them uh, with my group. So um, just so you know, if there's property that we feel good about that we can put our management in place, we, are, we will syndicate those and bring them to our equity groups. But I still have troubles with that. I'll tell you that right now. So David Goggins talks about the what if mentality. And a lot of people say, well, I'm never going to get cloud. I'm never going to get a track record. They're never going to take me seriously. And I come across the top of them and I say, but what if? What if they did? And so I show up to the events. I go to the CCIMs. I talk to them. I take them out to lunch. I view their properties. I underwrite their properties and send them feedback based on what I learned in the class. I mean, I do that. And they, they're like, wow, this guy got really detailed. We make videos of our underwriting now. So are you if using, I the, a SDA are you using the SDA for this? I'm curious. Are you using the
0: SDA for this? So the oh, syndicated deal analyzer. Yeah, we we do a lot. 100%. We'll create a video of our underwriting, say, hey, let me show you. And they do appreciate it. They, they actually get, get great feedback.
1: Yeah. One of your students actually taught me that. So mm-hmm. it was very, very cool. So we're doing that and we're showing that we're going to spend some time up front. And while this might be our first purchase in, in Kansas City, we have other properties. We have this, this, and this. So one thing I do talk about with people getting started, right, is what I would do is is try to focus on adding value to a broker by giving them feedback on that. So that's the first step. The second step, I think, is finding somebody in the city like myself who is trying to do syndications but also is, is licensed and really wants to try to make some fees on the brokerage side of the business and have them go try to find properties for you. So there's other me's out there. I I mean, I know there is, I mean, I'm not that anomaly. I mean, there's people in every, every, every city trying to do what I'm accomplishing. And so that was the second thing. And then the third is just networking your tail off. So, you know, Stephen Covey talks about thinking others first, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And that is a really hard conversation and really philosophy to have unless you'll have what I call enough project flow that if you don't get one deal you're not you don't have a scarcity mindset so I think in the broker world what happens is a lot of people will get really territorial and they're like well I'll make sure I have this this agreement in place with this person and then that crosses all these different lines I'm coming across saying look I might be a buyer I might not I might have a buyer I might be able to solve a problem for you let me have a shot at it. And I'll tell you in three days what I can and what I cannot do. And I've never not done what I I said I would, I would do for somebody. So it's just trying to be a different approach. And, and the one, number one question you're always going to get from a broker if they've been in this business for any long is how, how am I going to get paid? And do you need to get paid? So take those two questions off of the table for them, fix that, and then watch the doors of trust and rapport start to open. Or
0: right, how do you do that, then? How do you address that? Hey, how do you take that off the table?
1: So one, I think if if you're not an agent, you're not you don't need to be paid, which is totally fine. And then the second one, so that's that's when we get into to try how do you create your track record, right? So I, I would tell people to partner with somebody who, who has is exactly what I've done. It's allowing me to get the experience that I need. Uh, the second way to do it is if you are an agent or you are looking to. Get a fee in the deal you need to go set expectations with your own clients and you need to have conversations around saying guys there's no this is not a co-brokering situation if we're going to put an offer on this property, we need to talk about how I'm going to be compensated in this transaction. And you do that up front. And so when they ask, you say, that's fine. No problem. My buyers are paying my fees and that's taken
0: care of. So it's interesting. So let's say you are a newbie and you act as a, almost like a buyer agent. Now you're not actually a broker agent, but you're acting like that. And you are aligning yourself with someone uh, more senior and you're leveraging that person's track record as you reach out to brokers. How does that person get compensated? Like what have you seen?
1: Well, I would say that uh, you probably should go get your real estate license. <laughs> um, if it's uh you know, obviously if it's a, I think if it's a syndication, there's multiple ways that you can you can get paid. And Mauricio Robb just put a video out on this that I think is really really great. And I'm not sure if he was actually. He was, he yeah.
0: Mauricio was okay. was there. He talked about uh, what not to do and what to do uh, uh, using social media, raising your money. Let's assume it's a syndication. Exactly. Let's assume it's a syndication.
1: Yeah, so I guess if it's a if it's a syndication, let me just give you the first way that I did this. Okay, so I had no money to put into the project. I am a licensed real estate broker, so I was able to take a commission in the deal. However, I was reading; it was either the the Godfather's of real estate book. Bob Helms. Which, yeah, it might have been Bob Helms' book that I was reading, and I had never structured a joint venture together before. Okay, here's the situation. I'll line this up. We, we have, a, I had a client that was from out in, in California. He was looking for a multifamily property, but I brought him a property that was a commercial mixed use deal. It had two Airbnbs up top and it had a commercial tenant on the, on the main level. So not so much easy to put what we'll call management in place. Somebody kind of needs to be there. You can't call a property manager and say, Hey, I got a commercial building. I got a tenant and I got two Airbnbs. Yeah, and not and like here. a turnkey so
0: scenario. Yeah.
1: <laughs> not at all. Not at all. So I was like, well, I brought it to him. The yield was so good, and I brought it to him. I said, well, what if I solved this problem for you, the management problem? What if I solved understanding commercial real estate? And what if I could be an asset manager, and we structured it like this? There was an 80% to you, a 20% to me. You get a preferred return. I think it was 8% at the time. 8% preferred return. And if we go to sell, uh, we'll split the proceeds as well. And he was like, "Well, that would be great. I would be really open to doing that." And so there we had my first—not syndication, but my first joint venture—from reading out of a book, solving some problems for somebody, and then having the knowledge to set the project up in a way that was valuable to him and to myself. So I would say that uh, <laughs> I would say that you really need to be—you need to be focused on listening to to problems, and then also. Being really clear about what you want your role to be, and then making sure that also you're doing everything legally too. So in that, we brought a attorney in. We structured an operating agreement. We have all these different decisions because you know we our relationship was somewhat new at that point. But at the same time, we had every single line item. If this happens, then this is what will happen on the operating agreement, and and so forth and so forth. So I think that education is really really important, but also being open to different possibilities and knowing that in real estate, there's not always just one route or two routes. There's usually 10 routes that you can take and you'll never know if the answer to the question, if you just don't ask, I mean, the answer is always no, you have to ask. So
0: Robert Kiyosaki talks about this be, do, have thing, right? You have to be someone before you can do and have. And so one of the things is that you have to be generous, right? So if you yeah. want something, if you want abundance, you have to also be generous. Do sure. you think it would, uh, it would work if you as a buyer syndicator, uh, were to pay a fee above and beyond the normal broker fee? Like, do you think that would be real, realistic? And what would that, if so, what would that do to the brokers bringing you deals?
1: Well, so let me make sure I understand correctly. So if you as a uh, syndicator were willing to pay maybe a point above the other, well, I, I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you'll get more deals for sure. I think from a broker's standpoint, We have a fiduciary responsibility to our sellers, so we have to make sure that we present all of the offers in a way that, and make sure that everybody's getting a fair chance at it. Now, does that always happen? No, I would say probably not. And so, yes, I think that – I mean, I think that that would definitely – catch some people's eyes, but it also might raise some red flags to somebody too. I would think that in different markets maybe that would be acceptable in a market a very competitive market where I mean we're seeing in California people getting paid more than the regular rate on the residential side. It just started here in Kansas City for houses that are like300 to $700,000, that hot spot for that second home for people. You're seeing four and a half percent, four percent instead of your your three percent to people. So I think that I think that it's a real deal and you probably have some success with it. You just have to try to test it, man.
0: Yeah, interesting. Okay, I thought maybe you played around with that. But you're kinda of sort of already testing it as a buyer agent. You're being sometimes compensated by the buyer. So that's yeah. pretty cool. So what's what's next for you? What are you really excited about?
1: Yeah, so I mean, doing the brokerage is really feeding the family right now and it's really exciting because I'm implementing some creative strategies to find properties off market, mm-hmm. and one of that is adding value to other brokers and showing up. I mean, somebody said that half the battle is just showing up, so I just show up to everything. I'm just all over the place. Two is is uh, I'm really I'm really fascinated with marketing right now and how that has been able to position my brand because I don't have a lot of gray hair. I don't have the 25 years experience. My partners do, but being able to position myself as an expert, you know, I mean, if you go to livefreeinvestments.com, you'll see exactly what I'm doing all of the time and positioning that. And I get I get inbound leads instead of having to be outbound. I mean, most of the brokers here are on the phones 24-7, which is great. That, that should be a thing that you do. And I do that still. But I also am out in the field meeting with people all the time and letting my inbox get filled up with form submissions left and right. And that to me is very, very important and and fascinating. So I'm I'm pinpointing some different marketing tactics that I'm, I'm working on. And then this is a new one for me. So after I syndicated a few deals, I learned that, man, that front work up front of finding it. Doing all of this, setting it up. I mean, that is a lot of work. And you are the first one to tell people this is not for somebody who just wants to get in, get out, and make your money. Like this, if you're gonna do it the right way, it takes a lot of work unless you have a big team doing it for you. Well, we did not have that the first couple of times. And so I would say that I have found a way to for, for deal flow for myself and my equity partners by actually co-GPing with other sponsors and developers. So in asset classes that we're not super familiar with. So we're really familiar with commercial and multifamily, not so much on mobile home parks and self-storage. Well, coincidentally enough, at one of the events that I was at, I found two guys that are really focused on uh, self-storage and uh, mobile home parks. And I was able to fund a 920-unit deal just last month with, with uh, a couple of co-GPs where we'll come on board, maybe talk about and work through advising on the capital stack, uh, as well as work on some leasing, property management stuff, marketing. And we'll bring some of our equity connections to the table. And we actually sit alongside with them. And it's been filling up my pipeline of properties and projects to work on. And, and then this is a different conversation, but uh, the institutional money and the family offices love it because we're bringing them a solid deal flow. And that has been a really exciting thing for me. So I've got some really big projects that we're working on here in Kansas City and around the the Midwest on kind of the co-GP side of things. And I'm really excited about that. You know, that's just been a fun thing that's happened kind of the last 90 days for us, actually.
0: And that's awesome. I think what you're doing is you're giving your investors consistent deal flow, uh, because if you don't do that, they'll go this Logan guy, you know, I'll just go somewhere else. Exactly. And so presenting them with vetted quality opportunities like that really actually builds trust with your with your investors. So nice job with that. Absolutely. Logan, how can people connect with you?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't mean to plug myself earlier. It just was I was on my head. But my, my website is Livefreeinvestments.com. That's where everybody gets a hold of me and all my social media is there. So you can absolutely find me right there at that website.
0: Love it, Logan. Thank you uh for coming to the show and sharing a lot of these tactics for off-market deals. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, Michael, I, before we get off, I want to just acknowledge you for uh the trajectory that you helped me get on. And so um just really appreciate that, and it's been a it's full circle to actually be here talking with you today. So thank you so much.
0: Oh man, was that good? That's awesome. I mean, again, Logan's got hustle, and that the one key takeaway from Dealmaker Live a few weeks ago: the people who are doing deals are really focusing. On the brokers. I mean, especially the the really experienced ones that have scaled. Like for example, Michael Becker. We're talking about hanging out with Michael Becker. He owns six thousand units. You know what is he doing to get off market deals? My gosh, he's having drinks. He's going to lunch with these brokers. You know, he's really getting to know. Him. He's going to ball games with those guys. And this is exactly what Logan is saying. It is in the broker relationships. Yes, you can send out letters and do kind of stuff you can cold call. But I haven't really seen anyone actually make that work. Because these brokers, that's the 80/20 rule, 20% of the brokers get 80% of the business. They're already doing that. Why duplicate their work, take advantage of what they're already doing, build relationships with those brokers. So here's some of the tips that I wrote down. Number one is solve problems. When you call these brokers, right? What can you solve for them? It may not be actually a deal. It could be something my gosh, I got this proper manager who's flaking out one, My properties, or I got this done. The other thing, that's great. Look for ways to solve problems don't necessarily look to be compensated for these things. And as Logan says, that comes later on. Providing feedback on a timely basis. And that is key. And that's something we advise our students as well. For that, we have the syndicated deal analyzer. It's uh, it's probably the most popular underwriting tool for multifamily right now. Just Google syndicated deal analyzer and you'll find it. But the key is it allows you to provide feedback very quickly. And what Logan says is you can create a video. We use something called Loom, for example, L-O-O-M, and create a video of your analysis and send it to the broker. I just got this deal doesn't work for me. But let me just give you my feedback in case it helps. That's super value add, right? Uh, or value add is emailing your brokers, some some cool report that came out, some market report, stuff like that. Adding value solving problems, Uh, making sure number three, that there's no fees involved. Okay, so even especially if you have your brokerage license, you're just going hey, don't worry about it. We're not going to do any kind of fees, potentially consider paying them extra fees. I like that. I've heard this before. I don't know anyone who's done it. But I've heard Robert Kiyosaki talk about that in this be do have discussion. And then I think one thing number four is network, 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 and I think you really got that in this hustle. Uh, now normally we in, we advise people, especially when they're investing from far away, don't hop on a plane until you have a contract, and that is okay advice. But however. My observation has been that the people who violate this rule are actually getting off market deals faster. What I mean by that is research to market, uh, reach out, establish connections with different brokers, property managers, and then hop on the plane and do a one or two day market visit and really work on those relationships with those brokers It accelerates the process of you getting off market deals. So network, network is important. Do what you say. I think this is important because most people don't. They'll say, Yeah, I'll email you tomorrow. And they don't, hey, I'll get back to you in two days, and they don't. So you doing what you say, will already set you apart from everybody else. And then the last one is partner with someone. Okay, and this is really key, especially if you are new. find someone, and that someone has problems The experience indicators, for example, us have problems, problems is we can't find deals we need new deals problem we always need more money those are problems other problems we have is underwriting right so if we want to scale something or if an experienced syndicator wants to scale something we need underwriting actually what we need is we need deals on the silver platter Right. So the coolest thing you can do is find deals, underwrite it, let's say with the SDA, the Syndicate Deal Analyzer, start the negotiation process, you know, leverage the relationship that we have. So if you're a mentoring student for us, then you can definitely leverage our relationship because you're working with a full time syndicator and you're working with us. So you can use our bio and all that stuff. That's one main advantage of doing mentoring. But if not, you can join something called a dealmaker mastermind. That's uh, the michaelblank.com forward slash DMM. DMM. Uh, you can also go to the michaelblackcom forward slash partner, because we have this deal desk process. And it's very, very affordable. It's like 50 bucks a month. And you need the SDA, which is like 129 bucks. And we have a process for people to send us deals. So it's the biggest program of its kind on the planet. It's also the most affordable. Now, I got to say, we could charge $35,000 for this. and We don't. Others do. And the problem is that it would eliminate a lot of the deals that we've gotten are people who have hustle but don't have that kind of money. So this is why we created that program in returning to get really good at underwriting, analyzing deals. So it's the michaelblank.com forward slash part if you want we'll to check it out. Now, speaking of things that are working right now, Logan shared some of these things. So hopefully you got a lot of good nuggets out of that. And I was scribbling taking notes while during my interview. But I want to hear from you. What is one thing that you're doing that is really working? So he let me hear from you on uh, Instagram or Facebook, Instagram is the Michael Blanc. So let me know the one thing that you have done, that's really working. And in so doing, you're gonna see other people's responses. And you're gonna learn from that on Facebook. Uh, you can't post anything to my page, but you can go to our private group. It's the apartment investor network, just search for apartment investor network. That's our private Facebook group, and get in there and uh, and do the same thing. What is the one thing that you're doing, that has really worked for you. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Hope you found that useful. Catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles and videos, go to michaelblock.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising
1: Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.